So <clears throat> this evening, uh, I want to kind of go back to basics. I want to go back to some of the fundamentals. Recently, we've discussed a number of very deep topics, including things like uh, no self, uh, emptiness, which can be very, very deep and profound uh, topics. Last week, Gendro gave a talk on the very deep and profound teachings of Vasimbadu's Yoga Yogacara school. But this evening, I want to kind of, kind of come back to the basics a little bit, back to the fundamentals of Dharma practice, of Buddhist practice. In Zen, we often talk about coming back. We talk about returning. Uh, we talk about taking refuge, which is returning to our, to our home. And so we talk about coming back to the breath, coming back to this present moment, returning to life right in this moment, right here, right now. And so it's important for us to, to constantly come back to the fundamental teachings of the Buddha, the fundamental teachings of Dharma. And so this evening, I want to talk about a little bit about the Four Noble Truths, which are really, the Four Noble Truths are really the bedrock. They are the, the foundation of all the Buddha's teachings and really of all schools of Buddhism. Uh, I think all or most of the schools of Buddhism, uh, whether you're talking about uh, Theravadan practice, Mahayana practice, Zen, Tibetan, all the, the Buddhist schools really talk about and and uh, and really know the Four Noble Truths. Really, uh, it is the foundation of all Buddhist practice, uh, lest we ever begin to to think that we already know this teaching perfectly, right? We might have that, that temptation to know that we, to think that we know the Four Noble Truths. We've heard this before, we know it well, but the reality is that we are always learning and we always come back to these fundamental teachings. And every time that we do so, I think we can learn something new. Last week, Genjo used the analogy of an ear of corn, how, so, how we often see the entire ear of corn, but we don't necessarily see the individual kernel. I think when we come back to the basics, when we come back to the fundamental teachings like the Four Noble Truths, each and every time we can see one of those little kernels. We can see something new. We can hear something new in the teaching. And so the Buddha in his, it's often said that the Buddha early on in his teaching, he said, I teach two things. I teach suffering and the end or cessation of suffering. I think every one of us uh, in this room, everyone online, we all know and experience suffering. We all know and experience discontentment, dissatisfaction, unhappiness uh, in life, perhaps in myriad ways, to myriad degrees, from minor discomforts, minor challenges, to really deep, deep loss and grief and even catastrophes. All of us experience suffering. And we experience our own personal suffering as well as the suffering of, of others, uh, both known and unknown individuals throughout the world. We experience suffering in many different ways. <clears throat> and so the Buddha said, or it's said that the, the Buddha said that he teaches two things and two things only, suffering and the end or cessation of suffering. But I think there was another teaching uh, in, in that first that very first teaching of the Buddha, in his first discourse, there was another teaching besides suffering and the end of suffering, and that is the Buddha's middle way. It's often kind of overlooked or forgotten, but that was also a part of the Buddha's first teaching, and we're going to take a look at, at that a little bit this evening as well. 
<clears throat> but a common thread that I think you're going to hear uh, this evening that I'm going to kind of come back to again and again is translation of words or really the getting lost in translation. Um, and there's just kind of as an aside, there's a wonderful movie. It's a number of years old now. I don't know if anyone's familiar with this movie, but it's a movie that, that I like very much. And the movie is called Lost in Translation. Uh, this movie stars uh, Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson. And in the movie, uh, Bill Murray is a very well-known, but uh, now somewhat aging American actor. And he's in Japan. He's traveling in Japan and he's there to, to film a series of um, television and print ads uh, because he's endorsing a particular Japanese whiskey, uh, Santori, Santori whiskey. Um, and so there's a wonderful scene that always makes me laugh when Bill Murray's kind of in the studio and there's a director there and the, and the crew <clears throat> and they have a translator for, for him because the, the director of course is Japanese. And they're, you know, they're taking pictures and there's cameras and lights and they're filming, uh, they're filming some, some excerpts for this commercial. Uh, and in the scene, you know, Bill Murray holds up this glass of whiskey, you know, he takes a sip, he's supposed to take a sip. And he says his line, something like, you know, anytime is Santori time. Right? And they're doing this take and he, you know, he says his line and suddenly the director's like, cut, cut. And the director starts giving instructions, right? But he's, he's giving instructions in Japanese and he's just going on and on. He's got this, just this, in, this seriousness and he seems to be scolding almost. And he's going on and on, da 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 And this goes on for at least a minute and a minute and a half. And boom, Bill Murray's kind of stunned. He's like looking at the director. He doesn't know what he's saying. Then he looks to the translator so that the translator can translate for him. And she says, he says more intensity <laughs> Bill Murray just kind of looks at her like what that that's all he said I mean he was just I mean, he was just so you know he was so intense himself he was going on and on and she says yes he says more intensity okay so this is getting lost in translation okay? because I have a feeling that the director in that scene though I don't speak Japanese I think he was saying a lot more than more intensity and so did Bill Murray, apparently, in the scene. But things get lost in translation. They get lost in words. And so, <clears throat> coming back to the Buddha and his first, his first teaching. Prior to his enlightenment, prior to even beginning his journey, I think, towards that awakening, the Buddha also experienced suffering. He experienced discontentment. He experienced dissatisfaction. He experienced anguish. And I think he was moved by this innate compassion within himself, this innate compassion, this innate wisdom, which was already there, which already existed within him. He was moved by that innate compassion, that innate wisdom from the beginning to really seek out the causes for suffering and how to end suffering or how to to go beyond it. And of course, we all, most of us, I think, are familiar with the story of the Buddha. He, he goes on this journey. He engages in many different types of practices. He, he, he engages in these uh, practices of asceticism where he really punishes himself, punishes the body. Um, and of course, none of this 
really brings him to, to the answers that he's searching for until ultimately, uh, ultimately he kind of, uh, he goes beyond those practices of asceticism, those harsh practices, and he comes to sit under the Bodhi tree. He sits for seven days and ultimately he is awakened. He finds the answers that he was searching for. But it's said that immediately after the Buddha's awakening, really, immediately after his enlightenment, the Buddha experienced doubt. He experienced a certain doubt about going forth and teaching what he awakened to. This profound awakening that he experienced, this profound insight, this profound and deep enlightenment. The Buddha experienced doubt about going forward and sharing this with others, teaching it to others. And I love this part of the traditional story of the Buddha's enlightenment. I love this part because it shows that human side. It shows that doubt and that difficulty because the Buddha, I think within himself, he began to think, how can I teach this? How can I share this with others? This deep insight, how can I share this with others so that they will understand? Because what he awakened to was not something that came from outside of himself. It was something that was already within him that he found within himself. And so he wondered, how do I go about teaching this and showing this to others? And I think most of you, if you're familiar with our teachings, you've heard Genjo say many times, he describes this practice as being a really crazy practice, a wild practice. Genjo often says, this is one of the craziest things that you can ever do. One of the wildest things that you can do is engage in Zen practice. And similarly, I often like myself, I like to use the word radical, that this is a radical practice. These are radical teachings because this really goes against our normal condition, conventional views, how we've typically been told to think, how we've typically been, been taught to think. And if you look at that word radical, radical is defined in, in, in a number of ways. Among them, it says relating to or affecting the fundamental nature of something, revolutionary or progressive, based on thorough or complete political or social change. And then there's this, very different from the usual or traditional, extreme or favoring extreme changes in existing views, habits, conditions, teachings, or institutions. I think that, that describes this practice pretty well. It describes the radical nature that I see in this practice because it goes against the grain. It goes against how we normally think, how we're normally taught to think by society, by everyone. And so the Buddha, of course, had those doubts and those questions within himself of how do I go about teaching this radical awakening, this crazy wild practice. But of course, I think this was where the Buddha really perhaps used his initial skillful means. This is where his skillful means was born because he sought to that answer of how to make this teaching, what I have awakened to, what I have experienced, how to make this understandable for others. And so I think that once again, he returned to where he started, that initial, that innate compassion and wisdom that was within him 
he was once again moved by that compassion, by that wisdom that was within him to share what he had found, to share what he had awakened to. Because he, he knew, he realized that his awakening was not just his, but it was all of ours. It was the Buddha's realization that what was true for him was also true for each and every one of us. This awakening, this innate wisdom is within each and every one of us, just as it was within him. And it's said that the Buddha, upon his awakening, said that I and all beings together simultaneously are awakened. I and all beings together attain enlightenment. And this I that the Buddha was referring to when he said I and all beings, he wasn't just talking about Shakyamuni Buddha. He was talking about all Buddhas and all beings, past, present, and future. I and all beings simultaneously attain enlightenment. I and all beings are awakened. And so the Buddha, of course, decided to go forth and to share what he had discovered within himself, what he had discovered that was within each and every one of us. He decided to go forth and teach what he had awakened to. And this first teaching that the Buddha gave, this first discourse, this first sermon, is known in Buddhist cosmology as the first turning of the wheel of Dharma. And this first discourse he gave at the Deer Park in Banaras, near Varanasi. And he gave this teaching to, to five former ascetics and companions of his, five ascetic monks who he had trained with prior to leaving that, that asceticism, those, those practices of asceticism, he returned to these five former ascetics and companions of him, of his, uh, to give his teaching to them. And it's said that they initially kind of, they rejected the Buddha and his teaching. I think there was probably a feeling within them, oh, look at this guy, you know, he didn't quite cut it with us, he didn't cut it in our practices and he left us. And now supposedly he went off and he meditated and he, he's awakened now somehow. He's, he's, he's this awakened Buddha. So it's said that the five, the five former companions initially, they kind of reject the Buddha and his teaching. But of course, as the Buddha continues to speak to, the, to them, they see something in the Buddha. They see something different. They see something in their former companion and they continue to listen. They continue to listen to his teachings because something draws them to the teaching, to the Buddha. And so they become that first Sangha, that first community of monks to hear the Buddha's first teaching, his first major discourse. And it's often, the Buddha is often described as the original physician because his teachings, much like a physician, he taught what the problem was, what the cause of the problem was. He taught that there was, there was an end or a cessation or a transformation to that problem. And he taught the path to that ending or to that transformation, that cessation of the problem. Much like a doctor will, will diagnose, you know, let you know what's going on with you, or at least that's what we expect, right? If you go to a doctor and they say, well, the problem is this, uh, come back and see me in three months, right? I think we're all going to be left kind of like Bill Murray in the movie, wondering, 
wait a minute, there's got to be more than that. But a doctor, a physician will tell you this is what the issue is. They'll tell you whether that issue is, is treatable, if it's curable, whatever the case may be. And they'll lay out a treatment plan, how to go about treating or curing or, or dealing with this, whatever the issue may be. And so this first turning of the wheel of Dharma, the Buddha proceeds to teach about suffering and the cessation of suffering and the middle way. And I want to read, uh, this is just a portion of what is known as the, the Dhammachaka Pavatna Sutta, or Sutra. This is the Sutra on the first turning of the wheel of Dharma. And this is the translation from Thich Nhat Hanh. I often turn to Thich Nhat Hanh's translations because they're so, so clear and simple to understand. And so this is the sutra on the first turning of the wheel of Dharma. This is the beginning of it. This is what I have heard. At one time, the world-honored one was staying near Varanasi in Isapatana in the Deer Park. At that time, the world-honored one addressed the group of five monks, saying, Bhikkhus, there are two extremes that a monk should avoid. What are the two? The first is the devotion to sensual desire and the pleasure resulting from sensual desire. Such devotion is base, pedestrian, worldly, ignoble, and unbeneficial. The second is devotion to harsh austerity. Such devotion is painful, ignoble, and unbeneficial. By not following either of these extremes, the Tathagata has realized the middle way that gives rise to seeing and understanding. This seeing and understanding are at the basis of peace, knowledge, full awakening, and nirvana. What is the middle way, bhikkhus, that the Tathagata has realized that gives rise to seeing and understanding? When that seeing and understanding are at the basis of peace, knowledge, full awakening, and nirvana, it is the noble eightfold path consisting of right view, right thinking, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right diligence, right mindfulness, and right concentration. This is the middle way, bhikkhus, that the Tathagata has realized that gives rise to seeing and understanding, when that seeing and understanding are at the basis of peace, knowledge, full awakening, and nirvana. Here, bhikkhus, is the noble truth of suffering. Birth is suffering. Old age is suffering. Sickness is suffering. Death is suffering. Sorrow, grief, mental anguish, and disturbance are suffering. To be with those you dislike is suffering. To be separated from those you love is suffering. Not having what you long for is suffering. In other words, to grasp the five aggregates as though they constitute a self is suffering. Here, bhikkhus, is the noble truth of the cause of suffering. It is the desire to be born again, delight in being born again, attached to the pleasures found in this and that. There is the craving for sense pleasures, for becoming and for not becoming anymore. Here, bhikkhus, is the noble truth of ending suffering. It is the fading away and ending of craving without any trace. It is giving up, letting go of, being free from, and doing away with craving. 
Here, bhikkhus, is the noble truth of the path that leads to the end of suffering. It is the noble eightfold path of right view, right thinking, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right diligence, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And so this was part of the Buddha's first teaching, his first discourse, his first turning of the wheel of Dharma, of these four noble truths. And I want to say a few words on this word itself, again, translation, this word noble, because it is, it is believed by some to be, by many, to be a mistranslation of the original word. And it's, it's often said that the word is really, it isn't that the truths themselves are noble. We hear the four noble truths. But the translation is really not completely correct. And it's said that the, it isn't that the truths themselves are noble, but rather that those who come to understand and realize these truths are noble. That understanding is ennobling, or what makes the truths noble. So they can really, it, it, the better translation may be that they are the four ennobling truths. And there's a slight difference in the, the earlier Theravadan view of the Four Noble Truths and of this word, noble. Because in the Theravadan view, they saw it as kind of there being four stages on the way, on the way to awakening, to nirvana, uh, which begins with a, a stage that they call the stream enterers, those that begin to have an insight into the Four Noble Truths. And then it proceeds through three other stages on the way to nirvana. But the Mahayana saw it uh, in a slightly different view. The later Mahayana, which includes our tradition, Zen, and it includes Tibetan Buddhism, saw a slightly different perspective because in the Mahayana tradition, all beings are said to have innate Buddha nature. All beings, then, for these truths lead all beings to noble attainment. So the Mahayana saw it a little bit, little bit different from, slightly different from the Theravadan view in that in the Theravadan view, it seemed like they felt like you had to start progressing through these stages in order to, to be considered noble. Whereas in the, again, the Mahayana view saw it more from the perspective of all beings have innate Buddha nature. All beings have this awakening within them. And so all beings can attain this noble attainment. And so the four noble truths are really seen as as being kind of like part of the raft that takes all of us that takes all beings to the other shore of awakening or realization it is a part of this raft that we use to to cross to the other shore of awakening and so we examine the four noble truths beginning with the first noble truth which was called dukkha this word dukkha, and again, we go back to being lost in translation. Because often, most often, dukkha is translated simply as suffering. Right? The Buddha taught that life is conditioned by suffering, or pain, or misery. This is often how that word is translated. So it's often seen as being just plain deep suffering, or pain, or misery in life. And so people hear that, and of course, they think that this is a very... Uh, a very uh, nihilistic teaching that it's it's very 
you know, it's a very negative teaching that all life is suffering. But really, the translation of that word is a bit different. The, the translation is more, it's said that it's more a, a, a wheel being out of kilter, like the wheel on a cart being out of kilter, so that the, the cart doesn't quite run smoothly. Right? It's translated as being not just suffering or pain or misery, but as dissatisfaction, as discontentment, as challenges that we all experience in our life, as unhappiness. So this word dukkha, takes on a far greater uh, meaning than just suffering or pain or misery. So, and already contained in this word dukkha, when we examine that word, already contained within the word dukkha is the other side of that coin. What is known as sukha or happiness, contentment and joy. And that is already contained within that word Dukkha. And it's not its opposite, rather it is the, the other side of that same coin. Because when we have Dukkha, there is also Sukha, and vice versa. There is pain, there is discontentment in life, there is dissatisfaction and unhappiness, but there is also joy, there is also happiness. And they are the two sides of that coin. And in teaching about this first noble truth, the truth of suffering or discontentment. It's said that there are really three categories of suffering that we experience, three general categories of suffering. The first is often known as, just plain and simply, the suffering of suffering. Those things that we have very little or no control over. Things, of course, like aging, sickness, and death. These are things that no matter, I mean, we can, we, can, uh, we can take care of ourselves, take care of our health, eat well, exercise, etc. But ultimately, we all experience aging. We all experience sickness in our life. And we will all experience death. These are, these are, these are forms of suffering that all of us experience and that we have little or no control over. That is the first category of suffering. The second category of suffering is the suffering of change. The suffering of change. Because all things are subject to the law of impermanence. All phenomena are constantly changing. There is nothing that is fixed and unchanging. And we suffer as a result of this. Human beings suffer as the result of change. Because we fight against change. We don't like change. We like for things to remain as they are. We grasp on to things and we want things to continue just as they are. And on the flip side, when we don't like something, then we want that to be other than how it is. But there's always that suffering of change. Right? That, that, that suffering of change, it, it's like even when, we, even when we get or have what we want, we know that it won't last, that we can't hold on to it forever, that we can lose it. And so we suffer as a result of that form of change. So we either want what we don't have, and we suffer because we don't have it, and we want it, or we suffer because we have what we want, we get what we want, but we immediately feel like we can't hold on to it. It will change, I won't be able to hold on to it forever, or it won't remain this way forever. 
And we experience this in many different ways. And I've given the example in the past of, I'm sure I'm not the only one. If, has anyone else ever had, like when you're looking forward to, uh, to perhaps a, a vacation, a getaway, you want to go somewhere nice and you're really looking forward to being there. Are you really looking forward to get to, to a little bit of time away from work? And then you get to this place that you were going to go to, perhaps an island somewhere or wh whatever it might be. You get there. It's beautiful. And one of the first things that we think of is this is going to go by so quick, quickly and I'm going to be <laughs> back at work on Monday. <laughs> we just arrived to this thing that we were so wanting, feeling so good about. And one of our first thoughts is about losing it. It's not going to last. I won't be able to stay here indefinitely. I got to get back to the grind. And so we cause suffering. And then the third category of suffering is what's known as typically as universal or all pervasive suffering. And this, this is often the most subtle form of suffering and the most difficult to see. This all pervasive suffering. This is where we create our own suffering our own discontentment and unhappiness. Just like in the example that I just gave, we create that suffering. And this can be the most subtle form because with the first form, sickness, aging, death, we kind of all see that. We know the suffering of, uh, uh, of that type of, the suffering of suffering. And when we really examine change, we can begin to see the suffering of change, how we suffer because of change. But this all pervasive suffering, this kind of this undercurrent that so many of us have, this general background feeling of anxiety, of fear, of insecurity, this feeling of, of that we lack solid ground to stand on. And we even question the reason for our existence sometimes. Why are we here? Why am I even alive when this, this world just, just sucks? It's, it's just so painful. Right? There's this undercurrent, this general background feeling of suffering. And so often we cause so much of our own pain, so much of our own suffering because of this all-pervasive suffering. But from a Buddhist standpoint, these doubts that we often experience, the, these feelings of anxiety or fear or insecurity, this, this feeling that we lack solid ground to stand on, that we lack anything solid to hold on to. From a Buddhist standpoint, these doubts can really be instructive. They can be the doorway to wisdom. And this kind of leads us to the second noble truth, that suffering or dukkha has a cause. And it's often referred to in Buddhist teachings as a thirst, that we have this, this constant thirst, this desire this wanting and the two primary causes the buddha taught the two primary causes of suffering are attachment or craving or aversion it's it, it, the other side of it and ignorance right this not clearly seen or this willfully looking away right? and attachment when we talk about attachment or craving or wanting this attachment not only includes attachment to material things, attachment to people, attachment to sense pleasures, but it also, it also includes our attachment to ideas, to concepts, to views, to opinions, to conditions being a certain way, attachment to ideals. We become very attached, very fixated 
on our opinions, our ideas, our views. So this attachment, this craving, this, this grasping on and not wanting to let go is one of the primary causes of our suffering. And then there's ignorance. We suffer because of this fundamental ignorance. We suffer because of this very mistaken belief, this very mistaken delusion that we exist as a completely separate self, as an independent self, as a solid and fixed and unchanging I or self. Right? And we desperately want to hold on to that. We want to hold on to this self that we think is myself. I think I'm, I, I want to always be this way. And I'm never going to be something different. I'm always going to be me. I'm always going to be me, right? We, most of us think that way. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to change. I'm always going to be me. Whether I'm 25, whether I'm 50, whether I'm 75, I'm me. And that's not going to change. Except what is this me that we're referring to? What is this fixed and unchanging me, this fixed and unchanging self that we refer to? Are you the same person that you were when you were 15, when you were 20? Am I the same person that, that I was when I was 25, 30, 35, 40? I'm not that same person. I'm not the same person that I was yesterday because we are always changing. There is no fixed, unchanging self that we hold on to that never changes. We constantly experience change in our lives, but we fear that change and we desperately want to hold on to this self that we think we are. And then maintaining that delusion, that is samsara, that is remaining trapped in this cycle of suffering, of discontentment, of dissatisfaction, because we're working so hard to maintain this delusion of a fixed, unchanging self. We work so hard to maintain this illusion that we can have these things and hold on to them forever and that we, we won't lose them and they won't change. And that, that constant working on that delusion is the wheel of samsara. We're constantly trapped in this wheel of constant suffering. The third noble truth, the cessation or the ending of suffering. And once again, we go back to lost in translation. That, that word cessation is probably not the best translation of the third noble truth. It's often, it's often translated that way as the cessation of suffering or the end of suffering. But if we look at the first noble truth, we know that the Buddha said all life is conditioned by this dukkha, by this general dissatisfaction and discontentment. In other words, it's always present in one way or another throughout our lives. We experience it throughout our lives. Thich Nhat Hanh uses the translation of that word. He says transformation. It isn't the cessation necessarily or the ending of suffering as if we'll reach a point where we no longer suffer. That if we practice hard enough, if we train hard enough, if we do enough zazen, we will know, we'll reach this, this enlightened state, this awakened state where we no longer suffer. But I don't think that's possible but transforming our relationship with that suffering, with those thoughts that we experience. This 
is possible. We can transform how we view suffering, how we receive it in our lives, and how we respond to those difficulties and those challenges in our lives. This is the cessation of suffering that the Buddha spoke of. Not that suffering would end, that you would no longer experience it, that you would just completely end it and no longer experience any suffering for the rest of your days, but rather that we can we can reach a cessation of how we cling on to that suffering, how we create it for ourselves, how we remain trapped in that cycle, in that wheel of samsara, of suffering, of discontentment. We can transform how we receive it and how we respond to it. This is really the cessation of suffering, the transformation of suffering. And the, in the fourth noble truth, the Buddha spoke of the path the path that leads to the transformation of suffering. That path is the Noble Eightfold Path. And the Noble Eightfold Path really speaks to the Buddha's middle way. This was the middle way between that attachment, that aversion, that, that grasping, that constant wanting, that thirst, and completely, completely trying to avoid suffering, trying to deny suffering. The path, the Noble Eightfold Path taught the middle way. And when we look at the Noble Eightfold Path, those aspects of the, of the path, right understanding or right view, right thinking, right speech, right effort, all, all of the aspects of the path, that word right, we see that word right. And again, the translation. Because oftentimes when we see that right view, what is right view or right understanding? We automatically think that it's right as opposed to wrong. There's a right view and there's a, there's a wrong view. There, there's right speech and then there's wrong speech. There's right effort and the wrong effort, etc. But that word right in the Buddhist path, it's really not right as opposed to wrong. But what that word right means is what is most conducive, what is most in harmony, what is most beneficial for awakening, for liberation, for the transformation of suffering. What is most conducive to that way that leads to liberation, that leads us to going beyond or transcending or transforming the suffering and the discontentment that we experience in our lives. So it's not just right versus wrong, but simply what is most in harmony with awakening, with realization, with liberation. What is most skillful? And we, we speak in Zen all the time about skillful means, about employing skillful means. And skillful means goes beyond what is simply right or wrong. Skillful means is what is needed in this moment, based on these circumstances, based on this individual, what is needed. This is what the Buddha looked at when he decided to go forth and teach after his awakening. When he had those doubts, and when he stopped and thought to himself, how can I do this? How can I explain this to others, what I have experienced within myself? How can I go forth and teach this to others? They're going to think I'm absolutely nuts. 
where they're going to think I'm a narcissist, that I'm saying I'm awakened and no one's going to understand. But he went forth with skillful means. He looked at what is most beneficial, what is most skillful, what is the most skillful way that I can present this, that I can share this with others so that they can understand that they too, just like me, all beings can, be, can attain enlightenment, can awaken, can reach this realization. And so this, this middle way, this path of skillful means, the path of the middle way is that way between the absolute and the fixed extremes. And so I'm not, I don't want to go into all the aspects of the Noble Eightfold Path. That would be an entire another talk. We could talk about that for an hour or more easily if we go into all of the aspects of the Noble Eightfold Path. But I do want to touch on the first aspect of the Noble, path, of the noble Eightfold Path, which is right view or right understanding. Whenever the Noble Eightfold Path is taught, it always or typically always begins with right view or right understanding. Because right view or right understanding really, really gives rise to the other aspects of the path. To right thinking, to right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. They all proceed from that right view or right understanding. And what is that right view or right understanding? It is the understanding of our true nature of reality or of life as it really is. And this goes back to the Four Noble Truths. This goes back to the Four Noble Truths. Right view or right understanding is that understanding of who we truly are and how life really is. Realizing and understanding, recognizing, recognizing the universal truth of suffering, it, Suffering is known as one of the three marks of existence, along with impermanence and no self. Suffering and its other side, nirvana. That recognition, that realization of how suffering is intertwined with reality as it is, with life as it is, because it is always present. Life is conditioned by this dukkha, by this dissatisfaction, by this all-pervasive unhappiness, this undercurrent of dissatisfaction that we all experience. And so that right understanding of how life and reality truly is, this is right view or right understanding. And to transform, to be able to transform our suffering, to realize liberation, we first need to recognize our suffering and the fundamental cause of our suffering. Why do we suffer? What is the cause of the suffering, of the discontentment, the dissatisfaction that we experience? This attachment, this craving, this aversion, and ignorance, a not understanding, a not clearly seeing, or willfully looking away from and denying what we truly are, what life truly is. And while some forms, some forms of suffering, some form of discontentment are more obvious and easy to see, we have to train the mind to recognize those more subtle forms of all-pervasive suffering that come from within ourselves, the suffering that we tend to cause ourselves. 
it takes training the mind to begin to see to have to see with greater clarity where we become stuck how we cause our own suffering and our own discontentment recognizing how our own attachments our own desires sometimes insatiable sometimes inflexible those attachments and those desires how they cause us to remain stuck in the cycle of samsara in this cycle of unhappiness of pain of dissatisfaction and this is where practice comes in because meditation zazen allows us to cultivate that right understanding that right view rather than the misunderstanding that's born of desire that's born of attachment and ignorance meditation allows us to take that pause it allows us to take that pause and to really examine what we normally never examine how is it that i suffer and what are the causes of my suffering how am i causing my own suffering and this transformation of course is is not easy it takes continuous practice this just sitting still we talk about just sitting this silent illumination that we practice this just sitting still this watching our mind with non-judgmental awareness not allowing ourselves to be bothered to be overcome by our thoughts but seeing them as exactly what they are as just that just thoughts this is where the practice comes in this is where that silent sitting allows us to see to see those thoughts with greater clarity and to see them as just thoughts thoughts that come thoughts that go and in our practice we train the mind to not chase after our thoughts to not chase after our thoughts which is attachment not running away from our thoughts which is aversion and not willfully looking away or avoiding or denying these thoughts which is simply ignorance we train in looking at all of our thoughts and seeing those thoughts for what they are so i want to read just a small excerpt here before i close it said shariputra once said all skillful dharmas fall under the four noble truths in the same way that the footprints of all land animals can fit into the footprint of an elephant these truths not only provide the framework for understanding everything else that is skillful but also give directions for how to deal skillfully with whatever arises in our experience suffering is to be comprehended its causes to be abandoned its cessation to be realized and the path to its cessation is to be developed or cultivated in this way the four noble truths is the buddha's most overarching teaching the teaching that puts every experience in its place and tells you the most skillful way to shape your experiences into a path so to see ourselves within this framework of the four noble truths to see ourselves in within these these universal truths to see our own life experience our everyday life experience to truly see it within these four noble truths this is ennobling 
it ennobles us. It is a noble act that we engage in. It is right view. It is right understanding. It is virtuous and it is what is conducive to awakening, to our true self, to awakening to life as it truly is, to reality as it truly is. It ennobles us to see how life is on a daily basis and to see how we can transform that suffering, how we can transcend it and not allow those thoughts, those, those thoughts that, that keep us stuck in this wheel of suffering, how we can begin to transform how we receive those thoughts and respond to those thoughts. It is one of the most noble acts that we can engage in, to see our life within the Four Noble Truths. So if anyone has uh, anything they'd like to comment or share this evening, anything they'd like to, to uh, any questions or anything, please. Andy, or um, about the mistranslation of the third noble truth was not particularly interesting. I think I felt like in the past, maybe at the beginning of my practice, that like Buddhism would solve my problems, hmm. um, and it, it turned out that it just helped me relate to my life better in a way that didn't reject it fundamentally. Um, I listened to some Charlotte Joko back and she has a quote that I think about a lot where she keeps saying, um, uh, life has problems, but life isn't a problem. Mm. Um, I think that's really interesting that the specific circumstance of your life isn't going to be the thing that inevitably solves the problem of your life. It's just the specific circumstance that needs to be solved. Life on the whole needs to be accepted entirely, unconditionally as it is. Thank you, Andy. I love Charlotte Joko back. She was uh, such a, a straight shooter, I always say. She really, she taught in such a straightforward way and just kind of told it like it is. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, and this is true, and, uh, and oftentimes we come to a practice like Zen or to Buddhism thinking that it's going to solve our problems, right? that it's going to somehow give us the answers, right? all the answers that we're looking for. Uh, but really, it, it, uh, these teachings are a pointer. They're a pointer, they, they direct us, they point, they point the way to us, but ultimately they point us back to ourselves, to finding, finding those answers within us, not looking outside of ourselves, for the answers to, to life's problems. Right? Because it, uh, like you said, that, that quote that, uh, you know, life itself isn't the problem. It's often how, how we interpret life, how we see life, how we cling on and grasp on to certain things in life, and we make those things a problem. But we make it a problem, and then we're looking for the solution outside of ourselves. Right? We say to ourselves, I, there, I have this problem, there's this problem, life is a problem. Right? And I need to find the solution to this problem of life. We're looking outside of ourselves, whether it's work, whether it's family, whether 
it's friends, whether it's some other circumstance, we want to look for uh, who's the cause, what's the cause of my problem, which one of you did it, right? which one of you guys did it, which one of you is the cause of my problem. But we never start to think about, we never stop long enough to think about how am I causing the problem for myself. Or what are the what are the, the immediate circumstances that I need to deal with right here, right now, to to be able to alleviate this this suffering, or this discontentment that I'm experiencing. So, and this practice really points us in that direction. I think it allows us to really look at what what is the you know what is the immediate problem, what is the, the immediate issue that I need to deal with, and what what do I need to do right here, right now? What's in front of me? right now and how am i contributing to the issue so, so the, you know that this practice ultimately it points us in the direction it's not about giving us the answers to all of life life's questions i don't think any any practice any discipline or any teacher can give you the answers right nor should that the teacher points us in the right direction the practice points us in the direction to find clarity for ourselves so, thank you Anyone else? Oh, ask it. Yeah, Joe, please. I, uh, <laughs> I always, sometimes Dharma talks are like, they're like a long game of shoots and ladders, you know. Mm. You kind of make your little way and then you slide down and then you gotta start all back over, you know, it's this whole crazy. And, uh, but, you know, it, it it makes sense that it would be that way because of how complex we are, you know, and how complex uh, phenomena is, you know. Um, one of my favorite little writings, uh, it, was very short, it was very short, and it, it just said, uh, uh, you know, if, if all us human beings got everything that we wanted, everything that we needed, the Buddha said that suffering would still remain. And he said the world is unfixable. And it and it sounds like a it sounds like a death sentence, right? <laughs> but what he was saying is that there will always be birth and death, there will always be loss and gain, there will always be old age, and there will always be sickness. Mm -hmm. He said that is just nature, and that's mm -hmm. just the way that's that's our 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 lot here. And then he goes on to say, but it is the mind that can, should, and must be fixed. You know, so it's our it's our image of what all that stuff is that should be fixed. Because if we can't fix that stuff, if I can't change it, how do I come to terms with it in a way that works with it? You know? And it is it's it's a it's a it's a wild ride. It is a wild ride. <laughs> it is a wild ride, and I'm glad it's wild. If it was if it was because it seems boring sometimes. Sometimes it's boring, <laughs> but. Uh, but if it was boring all the times, I'd find something else. <laughs> That's why you have to be a tantric leader. Huh? Tantric. Tantric. Tantric? Yes, you can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start levitating. <laughs> no, I didn't mean that part. Thank you, Kendra. Anyone else? Yes, Yes. Um, so as you were delivering the teaching tonight, um, something that came to mind is like how when something happens, like at times our mind just catastrophizes it mm. and makes it bigger than what it is or say, why me? These things only happen to me. And, and I think that's 
that's where the suffering comes <clears throat> because you know bad things happen to everyone like you know losses happen to everyone as, as Kenji was saying it's just part of life but sometimes we're so <clears throat> self-centered and that we think it's only it always happened to me and it only happens to me why did you say sometimes <laughs> all the time <laughs> and i think we're like that's where we that's where we get trapped yeah. thank you Jesha. yeah and that's that's where uh, i think that's where a practice like like this comes in that's that's where a practice like this is needed because as Genjo said you know in that in that quote um we can and we must work with the mind fix the mind because that's where the real problems arise. But we never stop long enough to, to see that, right? We never stop long enough to see where we're creating the, the problem, where we're taking, taking a problem and turning it into this gigantic mm -hmm. tsunami, right? which begins to just swallow us whole. We, we don't stop long enough to do that. And, and again, we're constantly looking outside of ourselves for what's causing this this tsunami, this thing that's taking place, which is just, I'm, I'm drowning in it. But a practice like this allows us to take a look, to be, to, to really sit still, to sit with our thoughts, to sit and examine our mind, and to see what arises, what is constantly arising. Because, as Genjo pointed out, though, you know, there's always going to be suffering. We talk about in the three categories, the first is the suffering of suffering. That sickness, that old age, death, all of those things, they're always going to be there. That's why I say there's no, there's no end of suffering, uh, as it's often translated. It isn't the ending of suffering, but it is working with the mind, transforming how we, how we see and how we receive that suffering. And that is that, that, is that working with the mind and fixing this part uh, of, uh, of my suffering, right? of, of universal suffering is seeing how we contribute to it and what we can really do to transform that suffering. But when we're not still long enough to, to be able to examine it, well, then it just, it just keeps going. It's like that snowball effect. You know, it starts out small, but it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. That's yeah. it, please. My view is a little bit differently because I think that still speaks of this Western thing, that paradigm that we have, good and bad, dualistic, mm. comic, and assaultist. I think if we, if we embrace that anything that comes our way is the Cohen that's going to initiate, precipitate out of us the experience we need to let go, mm. to have a different orientation, of not per se fixing, but, oh, what this is about, you know, what what is this uh, Cohen of? You know, I have a lot of people that have a lot of heavy duty problems. Mm -hmm. I mean, besides private practice, the ones that have all these genetic horrible disorders, and I think by being more ability to try to be curious, not a problem solver. Mm -hmm. Be curious and embrace the experience, because that's what we're really running away from. Yeah. Have the the real bodily, mind, spiritual experience of, oh yeah, I'm gonna really die. It's not even, <laughs> you know, 
or I'm going to be diseased, right? Yeah. Or I'm not going to get that. Oh, I'm not going to get the Ducati. I'm going to be into the Nissan, I guess. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and that, that's 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 a part of the, this practice of this training is really just being with the experience, mm -hmm. being with it. Uh, Pema Chodron often talks about yes. this, and she she talks about how you know she says nothing, no no problem, no form of suffering, nothing ever really leaves us until it teaches us what we need to know, mm -hmm. what it what it what it came to teach us. And so that being with it, that's part of that wanting and that craving that we that we that we that we have within us, right? I don't want this problem. I don't want to be with this. I want it to go away, but we can't sit still with it and just just look at it, examine it, be with it, and see what it has to teach us. We just immediately go to that default setting of, I, I don't want this to be happening to me. I want this to go away. I want this to get better, but we don't really sit with it and examine it and just be with it and see what it, what is, what it's showing us, what it has to yeah, because sometimes when the rug is pulled out from underneath you, hmm. you get to fly. Anyone else? Psycho, please. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, when you, when you talked about the, uh, the second category of uh, suffering, being change or resistance to change. It just reminded me of uh, when Kenjo was speaking the other day about uh, you know this this ego, this self being a, a tight pattern or a holding pattern. Mm. Those those words really uh, resonated with me because uh, you know again you know we think of uh, me. Yeah. You know I I'm still me. I haven't changed or whatever, but. <laughs> You know, in reality, you know, we're kind of this whirlpool that keeps on, <laughs> on spinning, and uh, you know, some things spin out and new things come in. And, uh, but you know, in, in all this spinning, there's uh, you know, resistance to change, and and you know, the events that make up our lives. And uh, yeah, I, I think once we can, uh, <laughs> this practice brings us to the. Uh, slowing down the uh, the flow of that whirlpool a little bit and uh you know uh, allowing us to interact with the flow of events without resisting so much and uh so i really appreciate the way that you uh you delivered uh science teaching it really uh resonated with me thank you Thank you, Doctor. Yeah, I remember Roshi's words. He used to say something like, "Whatever we resist, persists. Persist. And if we persist it long enough, we become it." Mm -hmm. So that, that's that's that that whirlpool yeah. of resistance. <laughs> Thank you, Doctor. Anyone else? Second Zoom. Anyone from Zoom? Um, yeah. One more thing. Yes, please. So I think we have to be very attentive of the messages that we received around us because we are being conditioned to, that's why this is radical, because it's so different to what we're being conditioned on, the messages that we get all the time about having more, getting the best car, 
even about aging, anti-aging products, mm -hmm. like, you know, mm -hmm. I, I like to stop something that, like, it has to happen. It's not like you're not going to take care of yourself, but sure. it's to embrace. It's to embrace, you know, these things that happen that shows that we're aging, but it's, it's you know, it's part of nature. And why am I going to resist something that is inevitable? You know, if I don't mm -hmm. age, then what, what's, I'm going to die because it's like I'm not going to get any, any younger. Uh, so I think it's to, you know, it's to really see and, and be attentive to all these messages and learn to discriminate and say, no, this is, you know, if we're attentive, we know. We know that that message that we're receiving is not the right message. Um, so, yes, thank you. Thank you, Jessica. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, taking care of ourselves is essential, but as Rose should say, none of us is out here alive. So. <laughs> <laughs> we can either we can either embrace that uh, and suffer less, perhaps, or uh, with the flow. fight against it constantly <laughs> uh, and suffer quite a bit more. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so thank you, everyone, for being here this evening. Uh, thank you for the wonderful conversation. Deepest gratitude to all of you, both here in person and online, for being with us this evening. And we will, uh, we will close as we always do with the great vows for all and the benefits for all. However innumerable all beings are, I vow to love them all. However inexhaustible desires are, I vow to extinguish them all. However immeasurable the truth is, I vow to master them all. However endless the way is, I vow to follow it. May I become at all times, both now and forever, a protector for those without protection, a guide for those who have lost their way, a ship for those with oceans to cross, a sanctuary for those in danger, a lamp for those without light, a place of refuge for those without shelter, and a servant to all in need.